Good morning, everybody. We are just ending the month of August. We're a couple weeks into September, and if you were here for August, you remember that we were in something called apologetics month. Apologetics is a word that refers to a reasonable defense of the Christian faith. And so, in a sense, we're starting a new series, but in another sense, we're sort of continuing that theme in that this series, Bizarre Bible, will be looking at some of the more difficult stories of the Bible for this reason. One of the biggest hurdles to faith for modern people is the actual content of the Bible. So you might have heard an accusation, something like this, like, look, even if there is a God, there is no way I could worship and love that God if he's the God depicted in your Bible. Um, And there's these stories where he appears to be violent or quick to anger or bloodthirsty, or there's just these problematic, weird passages where people going like, you Christians, have you even read the Bible? Like, do you actually like know what's in there? So it's the actual content of the Bible that becomes this roadblock for, uh, for faith for, for many people. And many times you might have had friends even come up and approach you and like, hey, did you know this is in the Bible? Did you know this is in the Bible? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm sure there's a great explanation for it. God isn't like that or this is, God would do this. And then you open to it and you're like, dude, that's a rough one skip a few pages, and there's this like emotional angst that comes over people sometimes. It's like, what's going on here? And you, you sort of just kind of move on, but there's these stories that are bizarre. Isaac Asimov, famous science fiction writer and professor, said, properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. In other words, if you want to make someone an atheist, just actually have them read their Bible, because then they will encounter these stories that don't match up with the God they think they're worshiping. And so what we want to do is look at some of these difficult passages um, because we believe all of the Bible is the word of God and even the most weird and bizarre stories are in there because God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to include them for our good. And we say that we always trust the Bible. We trust the Bible wherever it leads us. You just have to sometimes do the work to allow the Bible to take you to certain places. And sometimes that's easy, sometimes it's difficult. Now, fair warning, um, the, some of these mess- every message in this series has some level of like, a, a parental advisory. Um, some are worse than others, and if you want to preview that, you can get the small group curriculum at the Connect table or go online and read the actual passages for the coming weeks for yourself so you can judge if you want to have your um, child in the room. But all of them have at least some, some level of parental advisory. Today we're going to be talking about a particular passage and a particular theme. And so what we want to do is look at this theme that's running all all throughout the Bible, this issue that's running all throughout the Bible, and then focus in on one particular passage that really brings that to the surface. And that issue today is polygamy in the Bible. So here's the accusation. The accusation goes something along the lines of this. You Christians don't even realize, like, the Bible is filled with polygamy, people marrying multiple people. Even more so than that, it doesn't even condemn it. And even more so than that, all the people who you were taught to, like in Sunday school, look up to as heroes of the faith, they're all polygamists. The Bible's just cool with it. And you you don't. You, You don't think so, but it's because you, you just have some other sexual ethic that's actually not attached to the scripture. So embedded in that accusation is the second accusation that 
A modern Christian is sort of just inventing their own sexual ethics concerning marriage and disregarding like the entire Old Testament and what was normal and never kind of prohibited. So that's the accusation and you feel the weight of it because if you've read the scriptures, you've encountered stuff like this. So what I wanna do is first look at this statement. Um, Most of the Old Testament heroes of faith were polygamists. Okay, just... Look, let's look at that and see if the first statement is even true. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. We'll go back to Abraham, like the guy who God made the Abrahamic covenant with, who is like the father of Israel, the one who in Sunday school, if you grew up in church, he has songs about, you know? Father Abraham and many sons and many sons and Father Abraham. And then you start to think, well, I know why Father Abraham had so many sons. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Okay, so all your heroes of the Old Testament, they're all polygamists. So far, bad start. Checks the box, Abraham. Okay, let's, let's jump forward to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Jacob is re- re- later renamed Israel because he will be the literal father of the Israel as a nation. He will have the 12 sons that become the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, now the sons of Jacob were 12. So those are the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel that are represented in the sons. So far, so good. Sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, if you just missed that, the sons of his one wife, Leah, are these. The sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bihah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, this other woman, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. That's four wives right there. So we're starting off bad. Father Abraham and Israel himself both are practicing polygamy. Well, let's jump ahead to like someone the, clip, the scriptures clearly say is like a good man of God. Uh, let's jump to uh, the kings of Israel. Well, let's skip, skip Saul because he didn't serve the Lord. We'll go to the guy after God's own heart. David. Notice the length of this slide. (laughs) These are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn, Amnon, by Ahinoam, the Jezreelite. The second, Daniel, by Abigail, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, whose mother was Makkah. So far, we're at three the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, the fifth, Shephatiah by Abital, the sixth, Ithrium by his wife Egla. Six were born to him in Hebron, where he reigned for seven years and six months, and he reigned 33 years in Jerusalem. These were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemiah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, four by Bathshua, the daughter of Amiel, then Ibhar, Elishama, Eliaphelet, Nogah, Nepheg, Jephiah, and Elishama, and Eliadad, and Eliphalet, nine. All these were David's sons, besides the sons of the concubines. And Tamar was their sister. 
Okay, so the accusation was, hey, look, don't you know the majority of the heroes in the Bible were all doing this? It's not looking good. What about David's son, the man who built the temple? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, and others. So the first accusation in this is actually on target that a large portion, you may say a majority, maybe it's not even a majority, but a lot of the people that we look to as heroes of the faith in the Hebrew scriptures practiced polygamy, marrying multiple women. Okay, so what's going on? Some things that we have to understand before we approach this. One, um, you have to understand there are many different genres in the Bible. The Bible is one book, but it's a book composed of 66 books. And if you look at all of those books in the Bible, they all have different genres that they sit in. There is um, poetry, there is songs, there is biographies, there are historical narratives, there's law books, there's like personal letters, we call those epistles, there are a lot of them are in the New Testament. You have all these different types of genres, and so understanding the genre of a book is really important to understanding what you're actually reading. In addition to understanding the genre of the book, you have to know the difference between prescriptive literature and descriptive literature. Um, Prescriptive literature is literature that's prescribing something for you. It's telling you what you ought to do, how you ought to behave. Descriptive literature is just describing something that happened. Prescriptive literature would be something like this. In Romans, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Love your enemy. That's prescribing behavior. It's not describing behavior and just telling you, you know, as a Christian, if you want to do this, it's up to you. It's prescribing it. It's prescriptive. Um, Turn the other cheek is prescriptive. Descriptive literature would be something like, and Pharaoh ordered the death of all the male babies. That's not saying what Pharaoh did is a good thing. It's describing what happened in that historical moment. So you have all the different genres of the Bible. Then you have the difference between prescriptive and descriptive literature. And then you have the issue of how to properly read narratives, which is very, um, it can seem complicated, but it's not. A narrative is telling you a story. And the last thing a story wants to do, or say a good movie wants to do, is have the director or the author interrupt the flow of narrative and tell you explicitly what is right or wrong. What a narrative does is it tells you a story in such a way that you infer what is good and what is bad. So, for example, if you're watching Lord of the Rings, um, you don't want the director, you don't want Peter Jacksons to come in and like, Now, that ring is a bad ring, and if you seek it, it means you're going to seek power, and those who seek power will be corrupted. Like, it doesn't need to do that. The way the story flows, it's telling you that. Like, when you're at the end of the movie or you're reading the book, you're not wondering, like, I wonder if it's a good idea Frodo just kept that thing for himself. Like, it never needs to explicitly say that. And in fact, if it comes out and explicitly says that, you're like, this is, this, this, is, this is weird. Also, likewise, you can infer all the good things. For instance, um, when you watch Lord of the Rings, or you read the, or read the books, you go, 
this Samwise guy is a good dude. Be like Samwise. He's a faithful friend. He, he rides with you to the very end. He's a good friend. Be like Samwise. You don't need the director to say, now, boys and girls, it would be a good idea to emulate some of the characteristics depicted by our heroic friend named Samwise. Um, likewise, I remember watching the movies now, like 20 years ago when they came out in the theaters, um, as, a, as a young man just going, dude, I want to be like Aragorn. This guy embodies all that is good and noble and true, and so I just wanted to be like him. So the movie never said, young men, be like Aragorn, but you just wanted that. You're like, dude, this, this is what I want to be like. And so narratives assume that you can infer what's right, what's wrong, and they want you to discern and to dig deep and look at patterns and themes and motifs. The biblical narratives are doing that all of the time. They're doing that all of the time. Now, that may sound like it's, it's more difficult, like, well, how do I figure out? No, it, it's actually not that, much, that, that difficult. We do, this, we do this all the time with narratives, and the more you read the scriptures, the more you see how they're telling stories and, and getting you to be clued in on which direction to go. So what I want to do today is look at this, that big issue of polygamy and then specifically look at the first occurrence of polygamy in the Bible and look at that narrative and say and ask, what is this story trying to tell us? What is it trying to tell us? So the first instance of polygamy appears very early in the scriptures. In the first several chapters, a little bit of the backdrop, you have Adam and Eve who are created first, their sin, uh, they have some children. Their first two sons are named Cain and Abel. Cain ends up killing Abel. And then right after that incident of Cain killing Abel, it's really weird. It's a section of scripture we skip over. There's two genealogies listed. There's a genealogy that looks at Cain's line, Cain's descendants, his generations, his sons. And then it skips over to Seth's genealogy, his descendants. Now, Seth is the son born to Adam and Eve after the death of Cain. So in some sense, you have now two lines, two, two lines of generations, Cain and his descendants, and then Seth and his descendants. So this is Cain's genealogy. Some of you were probably loving Genesis. One, two, three. Then you got to chapter four, and you're like, dude, this, this is genealogy. This is, this is boring. Let's read it. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of this city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushalel, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the harp. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Fantastic reading. It's like just genealogies. Now, this is how you know the Bible is, is pretty weird sometimes, those bizarre passages, because you have this genealogy, and then right after this genealogy, it focuses on this guy, Lamech. And then it actually has this bizarre passage. It records a poem that Lamech writes to his two wives. He writes a poem. This is ancient Hebrew poetry by Lamech to his two wives. Lamech said to his wives, 
Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He writes him a poem. And the Bible records it. It's a, it's a bizarre passage. And so you're going like, what in the world is going on? And at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 4, there is a man taking two wives. And then the passage just moves on and starts another genealogy, tracing, tracing Seth's line. And it's very bizarre. It's very weird. Now we want to say we trust the Bible wherever it leads, but sometimes it's difficult to navigate it because it is ancient literature. And if you're reading Genesis chapter four, you are reading ancient Near Eastern literature and it doesn't get any more ancient than this. This goes back, man, way back. But already there's been some clues that are telling you like something's off here. Something's really weird. Let me show you something. This is the genealogy we just read. Cain, his wife, Enoch, Enoch bore, uh, Erod, Erod, Mahujael, Mahuja, Mahushalel, Lamech. Okay, now I underline the names, okay. Underline the names. Lamech appears last, and then he's given special attention. The biblical authors in this are already cluing you into something, because Lamech appears as the sixth generation of Cain. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've been, been in church a long time, you know that there's numbers that mean stuff in the scriptures. The most popular instance of this is the number seven. Seven is very important. Like, there's sevens all throughout the Bible, and whenever there's seven something, it usually means something. Like, creation is structured after seven days. Seven, in the Hebrew worldview, it means completeness and, and wholeness. Um, the, another number that's really important is six. Uh, this is most uh, popularly known um, when it appears in the book of Revelation, where six is multiplied. It becomes like a super six, right? There's a mark of the beast, and that number is Six, six, six. Six is like the number of man. It's, it's the number of the, of the day that God created human beings. So seven is usually the number that represents completeness or fullness or wholeness, and six can often be a, a bad number, a, a human kind of rebellion number. Lamech is the sixth generation of Cain. Remember Cain, he is the image bearer destroyer, the killer of brother. What you need to be aware of in Jewish literature, especially in the intertestamental period leading up to the New Testament, Cain is the archetypical bad guy. Sometimes even more so than Satan. Like if you want to talk about the ultimate evil bad guy in Jewish literature in that intertestamental period, it's Cain. He is the bad guy in this story. He's the murderer. And so Cain's sixth generation leads to Lamech. Additionally, uh, Lamech is the sixth generation of Cain, but he's also then the seventh generation of Adam going through Cain's line. So Cain's line reaches its fullness or its completeness in the person of Lamech. Now, that's just in the genealogy, and you're just going to likely to skip over that. But the biblical authors are still cluing you in to the fact that these genealogies are doing something. Because right after that genealogy, there's an, an additional genealogy listed, and it traces the descendants of Adam through Seth. And Seth and his line, his descendants, are going to be the line that serve the Lord, worship the Lord. They're not like Cain. They're not made in Cain's image. And ultimately, Seth's line 
goes all the way down to the 10th generation, which is Noah. Okay, now this is, this is what's interesting. If you look at the seventh generation from Adam in both genealogies, Cain's line goes to Lamech, Seth's line goes to Enoch. So Enoch is the seventh of Adam according to Seth, and Lamech is the seventh of Adam according to Cain. In the second genealogy, just like the first, this seventh person gets special attention. Remember in Cain's genealogy, it's like Cain, Enoch, Erad, Mahujala, and it's, but then it stops. It gives special attention to the seventh of Adam according to Cain. Same thing happens with the genealogy from Seth. Let me show you what it says about this guy, Enoch, who's the seventh generation from Adam according to Seth. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, I can't get deep into this, and truth be told, it's very mysterious, and no one really knows what's going on, except it's something like this. This guy, Enoch, is apparently such a good dude that he walks with God in such a way that God's like, come up, buddy. Come on up. Now, we don't know exactly how that works, or or did he, some people say he never died, he was taken up like Elijah, or he died, and the scriptures are just saying when he died, he was taken up to heaven. There, there's all kinds of debate, but the point is this. These two parallel genealogies emphasize the seventh generation, one from Seth, one from Cain, and the, one, the second one has a righteous figure that is taken up to be with the Lord, and the other one has this guy named Lamech, who's the sixth generation of Cain, who is a murderer, who writes horrible poetry, who's a polygamist. And so this is a very ancient Near Eastern way of storytelling. See, the way we tell stories is fundamentally different. When we run into genealogies, just be honest, you're at church, you shouldn't lie. You try, and then you get to names that are hard to pronounce, and one, two, skip a few. 9,900, you know? But this is an ancient Near Eastern way of telling you something's really off here. The sixth generation of Cain, bad guy. Seventh generation of Adam through Seth walks with the Lord. And they're putting these two side by side to tell you something. It's ancient Near Eastern storytelling. At its finest, like this is, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Now, uh, even if you don't have any other verses in the scripture. Let's say you had Genesis 1, 2, 3, and chapter 4. That's all you had. So you, you, you started with the beginning and you got to this section in the scripture and there was nothing else in the Bible. You would automatically already see red flags with this guy Lamech. Like there would be red flags going, going off telling you, dude, this is whack. This is whack. Now, how does that work? Because in creation... In, this, in, in the days of creation, creation unfolds in a matter by which God creates in consecutive days after the pattern of what we say, what we've talked a lot about before, functionally different equal opposites coming together to form a unity. Now, that sounds very complicated, but, but it's not. Um, God creates... Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And every day that he creates, there's a pattern. It's functionally different equal opposites coming together to form a unity. So you have 
Heaven, earth, light, darkness, land, sea, waters above, waters below, sun, moon. And so when these things that are different come together in harmony, they form a unity and there's a cohesive oneness. So you have the sun and the moon, for example. The sun is not the moon. The moon is not the sun. They are functionally different. They do different things in creation. God designed them to be fundamentally different, but they are meant to work in a unified way. And what do you get? You get a day, night and day. Each one has its own particular beauty. There is something beautiful about a sunset, but on a clear night sky, there's something beautiful about the moon. So they are different. They are not the same. They are functionally different. They do different things, but they are designed to come together and form a unity. Light, darkness, heaven, earth, land, sea, sun, moon. At the climax of the creation account, you get the introduction of the last pair of functionally different equal opposites. Male, female, man, woman. And what does it say the man and woman do? You're like, do you really want me to answer that question out loud? Um, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and what do they do? The two become one flesh. Just like sun, moon, land, sea, heaven, earth, that pattern is replicated, and it manifests itself in humanity. Humanity comes together, and in sexual union, there is a oneness of flesh. And so from the very, very beginning of Scripture, you see creation unfolding itself following this pattern. And the man and the woman, they become one flesh, just like sun and moon, night and day. And this, this unity, this one flesh, is something that's supposed to be practiced in lifelong monogamy. It's like God brings this together, so we say, let no man separate. And so the pattern that is given at the very beginning of the story is the two functionally different equal opposites, man and woman, coming together to form a lifelong one-fleshness. So if you were reading the scriptures and you got to Genesis 1, 2, 3, you make it all the way to 4, and you see, and Lamech took two wives. You're going... It's not like there's a sun and, and two moons. There's land and sea. There's heaven and earth. There's light and dark. Like, this guy is breaking the pattern of creation. Now, if you are reading it looking for the, 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 the author to go, and this is another reason why you don't want to be like Lamech. You're not going to get that. But you have to understand what the scriptures is doing. Lamech is like his father, father Cain. He breaks the creational ideal you'd be going, dude, this, this guy is breaking the pattern. And it's not just a little thing. It's the pattern by which creation unfolds. It's the pattern by which God creates reality. Like reality is structured off of that. And he, he breaks it. Okay, now on top of that, you as a reader would go, this Lamette guy, bad guy, he's breaking the pattern. But there's other stuff that's inserted into the story. It's all over the place. It's telling you, don't be like Lamech. Look at his wonderful poem. Let's return to this very beautiful poetry. 
Adon, Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He takes innocent life, in, in particular, a young life. Does the taking of a young image bearer sound familiar at this point in the story? Like father, like son. He is Cain's blood. He's, he's repeating the sins of his father. He is a murderer, a murderer to a young man. Even more so than that, he's bragging about it. It's worse, at least Cain was sort of, God, I'm afraid for my life. He's bragging about it. Lamech is the murderer who boasts about his sin. Additionally, listen to the tone that he takes to his wives. There's no respect for love in the poem, right? Like, what is your image of the dude who's like, you wives, listen to me, hear my voice. I'm so awesome, I kill. And he was a young guy, and I'm boasting about it. So he is like the sixth generation of Cain, the violent murderer like Cain, who boasts about his murder. And then even more than that, there's still more in here that's, that's cluing you in. Don't be like Lamech. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now, if you're familiar with the first pages of the Bible, you remember that story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, then Cain fears for his life, and then Cain is like, God, people are going to kill me. They know I'm a murderer. God shows up and says, if anyone hurts Cain, then revenge will be sevenfold. Now, when you read this, it sounds as if Lamech is saying, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, like Cain was a vengeful guy, he has revenge. And if Cain revenged, avenged someone sevenfold, I will do it 77-fold. But he's actually not trying to one-up Cain because the revenge of Cain is not revenge that belongs to Cain. Cain's revenge is referring to God's pledge to protect Cain. So when Lamech says, my vengeance is 77-fold, he is one-upping God's justice, or he's attempting to. It's, it's blasphemy. He's exalting himself above God. So in Lamech, you have the violent, blasphemer, polygamist, who is the sixth generation of Cain, who is the seventh completed fullness of Cain's descendants. So this is a very ancient Near Eastern way of saying, don't be like Lamech. Bad dude. Very bad dude. The Genesis 4.15 reference, then the Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone found him should attack him. So God's vengeance is sevenfold. Lamech saying, I am better than that. It's 77-fold. So Lamech appears in the narrative as an anti-Adam figure. And by anti-Adam, remember Adam in Hebrew if you were here a few series back, means human. He, Lamech is the anti-Adam. He's the anti-human one. And this is what I mean by that. Adam was made to bear the image of God on earth as it is in heaven. He was given Eve, and they form a one-flesh union. They are supposed to be on earth, ruling and reigning in a way that brings about human flourishing, shalom, and peace. 
They are to worship God, not blaspheme God. So in Lamech, you see the anti-human. Everything that the human, Adam, was supposed to be is inverted. You have the violent one, not the peaceful one. The one who, he doesn't bring about shalom or harmony, he brings about violence. You have the one who blasphemes, who says evil things directed at God rather than worshiping and serving God. And then you have someone who breaks the functionally different equal opposite pattern in creation. So in every way, this dude is like the anti-human. You don't wanna, you're not supposed to be like, oh, I read these Bible stories and there's all these great examples, Lamech. Now, you have to understand the story appears in the first few pages of the Bible, and whenever you're reading the first few pages of the Bible, the Bible is letting you know the way you ought to look at the world. It's not just a story. It's not just a simple, detached story. It's telling you the way creation ought to work and the way creation failed. Now, so you have this clear thing going on in the first few pages of the Bible. But then you also, on the other end of the Bible, have verses clearly affirming that pattern revealed in creation. So here's Ephesians 5, an epistle written by Paul the Apostle. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So do you see the parallel? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is the husband, the church is the bride. And so husbands ought to replicate that pattern of behavior. We are the the loving of the bride type of people. Now, question. Uh, Christ loves the church, and so we ought to love our wives as husbands in that similar matter. How many um, churches are there? How many bodies of Christ are there? How many brides of Christ are there? There's one church, one body, one bride. So, the love of Christ is participating in that pattern way back in Genesis. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why does that work? One fleshness. There's a unity now. The two become one. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now follow this. This this is far deeper than than it first appears. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Do you remember reading that a second ago? That was way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Paul repeats that, but then he attaches this line. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, this is, this is deep. This is incredibly deep here. When we read this, we, we, we usually conclude something that's true, but not what Paul is trying to communicate. For the most part, when we read this, we go, oh yeah, you know, marriage is like a metaphor for, and an analogy, and it, it kind of is what God, what God chooses to, to use to describe his love for the church. So there's God, and he looks down on humans, and they see that they have this thing called marriage down here on earth. 
and he sees that like, oh, husbands love wives and wives love their husband. Um, I'm going to adopt this metaphor of marriage and use it to communicate my love for my people. And you see that in the Old Testament, there is God, the God of Israel, and his bride in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures is referred to as Israel. So there's God and Israel, the husband and the bride. And in the New Testament, you get that same language employed for the church. Christ is the husband and the church is the bride. So you go, okay, look, marriage is this, this thing where people love each other and God likes that and he uses it as a metaphor to describe his love for us. That's actually not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the earthly institution of marriage is an institution that God embedded in the fabric of creation so that we would have an earthly example of what his love looks like for his people. So it's not a a simple metaphor. Marriage exists as an institution embedded in creation to point to the greater marriage, the heavenly marriage of Christ and his people, Christ and the church. which there's like a thousand implications for that that we can, we can talk about. But one, just in the upfront, is that when you see the functionally equal opposite union of a man and a woman, it, we're gonna presuppose it's a healthy, loving marriage. Every marriage has its hiccups and problems. And we're gonna say, is it a real, they really love each other and the world knows it, their kids love it, everyone knows it. That, that picture of that earthly marriage in some way is reflecting the greater reality of God's love for his people. So God puts in creation a picture for us to know what his love is like. And it's marriage when it's working properly. And so from the beginning of the scriptures to the end, that pattern is pointed to. And it's bound up with the gospel itself. The image is embedded in creation to point you to the gospel. So then you take all of that, what we've just gone over, and then you say, well, how do you read different genres and prescriptive versus descriptive literature, and how do you read narratives? And then you go back and say, look, the first instance that you have of someone breaking this pattern, everything goes terribly wrong. It's done by the sixth generation of Cain. He's a murderer, a blasphemer, and he takes two wives. So then we ought to see that shedding light or giving influence to our interpretation of all these other instances. And when you do the deep work to look at how narrative works, and you go back and you read these stories, we're not going to go through all these stories, but you're going to read that every time these occurrences happen, the scripture's telling you, this is bad. This is bad. Don't be like Abraham when he does this. Don't be like Jacob. If you're familiar with the biblical stories, how does Abraham's taking of a second wife go for him in the narrative. Very bad. Now, again, the director doesn't come out and say, you know, kids, it's a very bad idea to do what Abraham did. But when you read Genesis over and over and over again, you will see themes, patterns, and motifs manifesting themselves. And it's telling you in a thousand different ways, Abraham is doing wrong by this. Jacob, how did it go for him? For those of you who grew up in church, you know these stories. What was it like for Jacob and his family by living like this? Horrible. For those of you familiar with the scriptures, what happens to David and his family, his children, the people who he said he loved most? It's beyond tragedy what occurs in David's life. It is horrific. It's horrific. 
Solomon, it says that he sought all these other wives, and then what does it tell you later about Solomon's heart? We just got done with the Solomon series, right? The taking of those women was the moment right before the greatest fall because Solomon went from loving God and having the Shema heart to seeking after many wives and Solomon falls and it was a great fall. So when you go back and read these stories, yes, there are times when these heroes of the Old Testament perform great deeds or show faith, but the scriptures also point to their greatest failures. which is incredible that the scriptures would do that because it's telling you, even the guys who, who do some good, we're gonna include their greatest failures. In David's case, the most popular example is that's the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Adultery and murder, and the Bible includes that. And that's descriptive language, not prescriptive literature. That's not saying, be like David when he lives like this. It's saying, don't be like David. Spare your family the pain of this. So, You don't follow the examples of Abraham, Jacob, David, and Solomon. You look to the answer to everything, like in Sunday school to grown-up church, Jesus. Jesus, why? Because Jesus is the faithful husband in Scripture. Remember, marriage is an institution embedded in creation to give us a living, walking, breathing example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you look at earthly things and you're not supposed to keep your gaze there. You say, what is this pointing to? And you see the marriage of Christ and his bride, his one bride, his one body, the one church. And he becomes the person that we ought to emulate. We wanna be like Jesus. We wanna look to him. And he is the faithful husband who always cares for the bride, which is the church, all of us collectively. Now, whenever you talk about these things, I know there's always, um, there's like a host of different emotions and feelings and pain because in a room like this, there are people who are happily married who are like, yes, my marriage is a living, walking, breathing example of the gospel and everything. I mean, there's problems, but the marriage is great. And then there's people who are in difficult marriages. There are people who have divorced. There are people who have lost their spouse widows and widowers, there are some of you who are single, some of you who are single and you don't want to be, and some of you are single and you want to be. So it's like, oh, you know what I mean? Within the room, there's a host of like pain and emotions and thoughts that are bound up whenever you're talking about like marriage. And so what I want to say is no matter what situation you find yourself in, there's grace and forgiveness from Christ, the faithful husband. His grace is sufficient. Um, And even though this is a message on polygamy, there's a word for like everyone, no matter your walk of life. Like if you're in a marriage, you want to follow the pattern that Christ gives us to such a degree that people see your earthly marriage and go, dude, what's up with that? You guys truly, genuinely love each other. Like, where does that come from? And you can say, oh, well, we're Christians. Our marriage is, is, is founded on Christ. So this earthly image is pointing you upwards. And then if you're in a difficult time, you're struggling, 
you realize, you know, marriage is worth fighting for. It may not be, be perfect. There may be issues. But I am called to, to try to emulate Christ in this situation. And those of you who are single for whatever reason, whether it's a, a, there's divorce or, or death, the earthly image is something that you are not currently participating in. But you and your singleness can fix your gaze to the heavenly reality, the ultimate marriage of Christ and his people. And so no matter where you're at or what you bring to the table today, married, difficult times, divorce, remarriage, widow, widower, this has something for everybody. Because for all of us, we are the bride of Christ and we are to look for the faithful husband. And because of his faithfulness to us, we in turn seek to be faithful to him. Because this is the story of creation and the faithful husband. God wants to create out of the goodness of his own being. He wants others to participate in the goodness that he's experienced for all eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit. He creates. Creation rebels. And it goes bad real quick. From Adam to Cain, the murderer, to the sixth generation of Cain, the violent polygamous blasphemer. And human beings rebel and rebel and rebel, and they participate in what we call spiritual adultery. They seek after other gods. So what is the penalty for spiritual adultery? It's like divorce, death. But what does Christ do? He finds his unfaithful bride, and he establishes the new covenant. Although he had every right to divorce us because of our rebellion, he seeks us out and says, we're gonna stay true to this marriage, and he initiates the new covenant. And we are brought in as God's people to become the bride of Christ. And as a bride, we are flawed, and we fail, and we make mistakes, but we have the good and true and faithful husband who will never leave us or forsake us. And for those of you who have experienced the pain of broken, fallen, earthly marriages, you know the pain of abandonment, betrayal, adultery, there is one who is the faithful and true husband who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who will be with you to the very end, even to the end of the age. And so because of his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness, we in turn give our lives to him and we pledge, I want you to have all of my heart. Take it all, Lord. You are worthy and you deserve it. Help me to be faithful as you've been faithful. Let's stand as we take communion.